Welcome to Nine Point Started With A Dream Podcast. Our goal is to showcase the stories of athletes and the community that supports them by being authentic about their journey. Here's your host, Jacoby Gillum. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jacoby Gillum. This episode, we have Dre Baldwin in. This episode is going to inspire you to take action. You know, with Dre's journey, he, he says early on in the episode that all you need is 10%, 10% of the knowledge, you know, and he takes that 10%, you know, he goes from being a D3 athlete to playing abroad professionally. He took, you know, one to, you know, basically blogging and YouTube to starting a paid speaking opportunity to becoming a consultant. And, you know, and hopefully this episode inspired you wherever you're on your journey, whether you're trying to make, make, make the dream reality or you're trying to transition to life after that you can just take action and kind of let the journey guide you, you know, by just putting in the work. So I hope you enjoy and let's get to it. Well, Dre, the question that everyone that comes on is when you're younger as an athlete, what was one of your bigger dreams and goals you wanted to achieve? I just wanted people to know me through sports. Like when I first started playing sports, I was like, all right, I want, because I saw that the best athletes were people who were known. They were known by the other athletes. They were known by the fans, whoever the fans were. And I wanted that. I was like, man, if I could just be good at this sport, I would get this attention that this person is getting. So I want people to know me, but not just for knowing me, know me because I was actually good at what I was doing. So since I was already starting to get invested in sports, and I tried a couple different sports, but once I started to get invested in sports, I'm like, man, that's the thing that I really want to do. I want to get people to know me because I'm performing at a high level. So when you go on that, you know, you want to be known what drove that feeling, you know, like it wasn't like I want to go to the NBA. It wasn't I want to go, you know, be a pro. It was like I want to be known. So what internally, I guess, maybe drove that quest? When it came to that, yeah, I did. Eventually that goal became, they became measurable things. Like I want to play on a high school team. First was playing the neighborhood team. Then it was playing on a high school team. Then it was making it in college. Then it was play pro. So it did become goals. But the first thing that I saw, was just in my neighborhood. The best players were like the guys when they came in the park, people was like, yeah, yeah, we got to get him on the team. He's really good. Or we got to watch this guy. So that's what I was going for because that's just what I saw. And because I was sometimes the same age as some other guys who were getting more attention to me. So I'm competitive. I was just like, all right, so they're getting the attention because they're good. So I want the attention. So I knew if I became good, I would get the attention and I could take it from them or maybe they had to share it with me. So that's really where it came from was just, that was the first thing that I saw so that it became, then what's the next step? What's the next step? Because we know in life, just to say that you did something or to achieve something so uh, intangible, such as getting attention is cool, but there are steps that can be followed, right? And in the sports world, for example, the great thing about sports that I really like is that we have that scoreboard. You know, the scoreboard rules over everything. So you can say whatever you want to say about your performance or how you feel about the opponent, whatever. But the scoreboard has the final ruling. So in sports, for me, it was, all right, playing in the neighborhood, you do your thing. That's cool. Now the next thing is, can you play on your high school varsity? Then it's, can you play in college? Then it's, can you play in a pro? So can you take that next step, next step, next step? So once I started to get good, I stopped looking at just, are people going to know me? Because I knew that would come if I just continued to, get better and perform at higher levels, it would happen automatically. People would know who I was because I kept advancing to a higher level from where I had been previously. So it kind of started to work on its own, even though that was the start of it, was to just get the attention. Eventually, the accomplishments took over. So in a sense, it's almost, kind of, it's almost like you kind of realized that the results would come through the action. Yeah, I knew that when I put the work in, that first of all, I could see that I would get better if I kept putting the work in, even though I didn't quite know what the work would be. I didn't even know what the work should be at the time, but I saw that I was starting to get better little by little combined with the fact that because of sports, there are clearly defined outcomes as opposed to something like we could even say something like business is kind of harder to say what the goal is. And in business, different businesses can have different goals, even though they're in the same industry, but in sports, everybody has one goal, which is to win the game. So I had those clear objectives of going to the next level, next level, next level. And as I continued to get better and I saw other opponents. So, all right, I could become better than these guys in the neighborhood. But now these guys at the next level, they're a little bit better than me. So now I got to compete against them. Then it's the next one, the next one. So it was always someone to compete against. There's always that challenge, you know, of who can you defeat? And even when you beat somebody, maybe they, you got to play against them again. So there's always that measuring stick in sports that is just straight 
black and white who won and who else. Again, that's the great thing about sports is that it's so clear as opposed to other areas of life where it's usually not as clear. So there's usually some gray involved. Oh, man, that's so true. Yeah. So where'd you grow up? Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Born and raised. West Philadelphia, born and raised. <laughs> yeah. are, are you not are West you, Philly, but Philly. <laughs> yeah. Are you an Eagle? Are you an Eagles fan? I'm not into football that deep, but I do follow it. Like every Sunday, I put the the Red Zone network on and just see what's going on. But I definitely was cheering for the Eagles in the that Super Bowl when they beat the Patriots a couple of years ago. Absolutely. Definitely. That's what's up. So as you kind of started, I guess, as you would say, maybe developing your athlete mindset, right? And you started kind of you started putting the work and maybe kind of figuring out different goals you wanted to achieve. When did you start saying that, all right, or how did you figure out, I want to take this to the next level when it comes to outside of just Philadelphia? Well, growing up in my neighborhood, it was, that was all we really could see because I'm 37. So I was born in 1982. So growing up, my teen years was all in the nineties. So the internet did exist, but it wasn't ubiquitous. Everybody didn't have access to it. So all we really knew was who were the best players around here, who were the best players in the city. That's pretty much what we knew. Best players in the neighborhood, best players in the city, who's getting a chance to compete against those players. So once, and so I graduated high school in the year 2000. So around that time, you could get a magazine or something and they would list these are the best players in the nation and things like that. So I would see those things and you would see what colleges people were going to. And I ended up going to, I was in the Penn State college system. They had multiple campuses. I went to one of their branch campuses, ended up at a division three school. But for me, I was about 16 years old to answer your question. That's when I decided that I wanted to try to become a professional in basketball. And the first professional thought was I want to try to play in the NBA because at 16, you're thinking this is the late mid to late nineties. I didn't know anything about overseas basketball. The only thing we knew about basketball was who was playing in the NBA, college, and high school. That's all we knew. So that was my goal. And then once I got into college, you know, I'm playing and doing what I'm doing. And one of my teammates, actually, he came from a place where he knew guys who actually played overseas. So he was the first person to kind of open my eyes to overseas being a possibility. And since I didn't get drafted to the NBA coming out of a Division three college, that's when I started looking at that as a possibility, but I still had to get the information and figure out exactly what to do, where to go, what are the steps to take. But once I figured that out, then I was able to you know, put my foot on the gas and make things happen. So going back to the college days, right, when like you're D3 and I got realized through this whole thing that sometimes we kind of segment like athletes by class when it comes to like D1, D2, D3. And it's like, I feel like we can all make the dream happen regardless of where we are, you know? So for you, when, when you were at, you know, the D3 school and you still have these dreams, were you ever discouraged or like this wouldn't be possible? Well, for me personally, I always had it in my head that I was going to make it happen. I did not know exactly how. I didn't know where, when, what to do. I didn't have any other information. I didn't have any kind of strategy or plan. Like if someone had asked me at that time, I couldn't have told you how any of that was going to work out. But I had it in my mind that I was going to make it happen. But had I talked to anyone about it, there were very few people who could see it because number one, even to this day, we're talking almost 20 years ago, but even to this day, a lot of people in the United States, even basketball players, don't know much about the overseas world. It's not as out there as, let's say, for example, the NBA, where all the information, you can Google it and pretty much get everything in black and white. The overseas game, there's a lot that people have no idea how it works or what's going on, or they don't even understand that overseas is not just one big league. They don't understand that every country has their own leagues and things like this. So most of my teammates at a Division three level, most of them weren't even thinking about extending their playing days past college. They were playing in college. They're going to enjoy that time, and then they're going to go do something else in life besides playing sports, which is what most college athletes are going to do anyway in almost every sport. So for me, it was just keeping that idea alive in my mind. It wasn't too many people to talk to about it, except like I told you, I had a teammate who did know some guys who had played overseas. So it was a real possibility in his mind because he had seen people do it. So I got information from him and I had a couple other teammates. It was just a kind of an anomaly. The team that we had my last year at my college, because we had, 
about four or five guys who had professional level skills all on the team at the same time, just kind of by several strokes of luck, we all ended up in the same place at the same time. But in general, it wasn't too many people to talk to about it because most people had no idea what was going on and they wouldn't have understood it even if I had tried to explain it, which I couldn't have explained because I didn't even know it that well at that point. So really, it was just something to answer your question, just something that I kept in my mind. I knew that's where I was going, but there wasn't really much to talk about or anyone to talk to about it. Definitely. So you kind of manifest internally. Yeah, exactly. So you got the dream though, or you got the vision now to, to say that I have a way to continue playing overseas, you know, I the NBA, but now, I've got, now I can go pro overseas. Mm-hmm. So I know like from interviews I've done so far that it's definitely a lot of knowledge that isn't known to most athletes about playing pro overseas. So how do you think we can start eliminating that gap for athletes, you know, of all division, NAI, D3, D2, D1, to kind of know that there's more opportunities overseas? How can we eliminate the, like, the information gap yeah. about overseas? Man, well, the biggest thing people can do or someone who has the experience is they can share what they know, which is what I've been doing for over a decade now is I started writing articles about my experiences overseas and I would write about like kind of like self-help guides for players, what they can do. I wrote the only book in existence still to this day about how to play basketball overseas. Actually made it maybe a couple others by other people, but the first reference guide for actually how to play basketball overseas, not a story of my career, but how to do it yourself. I went and published that. I made several videos on YouTube about it. So I've shared a ton of information about the things that you need to know and the things that you need to do. The thing about playing overseas is that it's not like becoming a lawyer or a doctor or getting what we would call the quote unquote regular job in the United States. And that it's not that if you color by numbers and you do steps one, two, three, four, that you're guaranteed to get this spot. Like You could do everything that I did and still not get a job overseas. So it's just a matter of you understanding that the game that you're stepping into is that it's a buyer's market. There are maybe 10,000 jobs total overseas, not just for American players, but for everybody. And there are maybe 100,000 people trying to play. So everybody's not going to make it no matter how good you think you are or how hard you think you're working or anything like that. So that's what people need to understand, first of all, that there are no guarantees here. And the second thing is you just got to market and promote yourself. You really just have to know how, either know how to do that or find somebody who knows how, such as an agent or a manager or somebody like that. But the main thing people need to understand is that they go on Google and they look up playing basketball overseas. There are a lot of articles out there, some by me, many by other people. There are videos out there. There are books, as I already mentioned, out there. So enough information for people to take action exists. What I like to tell people is that you only need about 10% of the information to take action. You can start doing something with only 10% of the knowledge. You'll figure out the rest as you go along. But a lot of people seem to want to not do anything and they use a lack of information as an excuse. But in 2020, that we're almost in, a lack of information is no longer an excuse because all the information is out there. It's just a matter of people being willing to move themselves to action. Again, understanding what you're stepping into, that it might not work out no matter how hard you try, but that's the game. That's what you're trying to get into. You're trying to get into a one in a million business. That's what it is in basketball. I love that. Everything you just said out there, like we get in like information overload, trying to know it all. And that really, and you, you right. get paused and you just freeze. Right. I know I've done that in business, you know, like I want to learn it all. And I'm going to realize I, I learn everything or try to learn everything. And I just freeze and take no action. Exactly. So when you started making that kind of, you started navigating that water a little bit. So we got time to kind of, you're graduating, right? Your college. How much knowledge did you know at that time or, or did they ready to say, I'm going to take action now to make this dream reality? For playing overseas, you're saying? Oh, yeah, for playing overseas. Well, the first thing that I did when I finished college, actually, I had a couple of, a couple of my teammates because I didn't even play my senior year of college because a new coach had come in besides the guy who had recruited me and I ended up out of the program. But I was healthy. I was physically I was fine. I just wasn't on the team. But a couple of my teammates who are close friends of mine to this day, they were on the team and they have received letters that invited them to come to uh, what we know as an exposure camp which is basically like a job fair, but it's for athletes. You go play, and if you play well, maybe you'll get an opportunity from an agent, a coach, somebody who owns a team, something like that. 
So they got that letter saying, come to this exposure camp. And they were telling me, like, Dre, you should go to the camp too. But at that time, I didn't feel like my game was in its best shape because I hadn't been on the team that year. I still worked out and all, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in my best game shape. So I didn't go to the camp that year. I worked before I even did that. As soon as college ended, I went to a couple of tryouts for some local, I guess what you call semi-pro teams to where they actually do pay you money, but not a full-time salary. So you'll make some money, but usually, and not usually, but everybody who's on a semi-pro team usually has some other kind of job, definitely has some other kind of job outside of playing on that basketball team. So I went to a couple of tryouts for those teams. Nothing came of that because a lot of those teams aren't always financially solvent. They can't even stay afloat and pay their players. But I didn't end up working with them. I worked a regular job for my first year out of college. I worked at Foot Locker as an assistant manager. I worked at a gym called Bally Total Fitness, selling gym memberships. And then a year after graduation, I went to that same exposure camp that my teammates had went to the year before. I went to that camp the next year and I played well there. And through my performance at that camp, I connected with my first basketball agent and that agent helped me get my first job, which happened that the end of that summer. So around August of 2005, which is a year after graduation, that's when my career began. So what helped you? Like it can sound easy to me from listening, like, ah, oh, he just kind of kept going. Right? right. But I know it wasn't an easy process Not you know, to, to keep pushing when you got the big dream and vision that you're like, man, when is my break going to come? So for you, how did you keep the mindset or how did you can kind of just keep going and just keep internally saying my break coming? That's a, a great question. And the thing is this, this is the most important thing people got to understand. And anybody listening to this, who's ever heard any kind of motivational speaker, or you ever read any kind of self-help books, you probably heard someone say something along these lines. It's not what you want to achieve or whatever the goal is that matters as much as your reasons for wanting to achieve the goal. Or as some people like to say, your why. What is your why for doing what you're doing? What are your reasons? What are your motivations for doing it? That matters more than your actual ability to do the thing. Because every one of us has dealt with someone who has the ability to do something. They could do it really well, but we're looking at them crazy because they're not doing it. For whatever reason, they're not achieving it. They seem to be half-assing it. They're underachieving. And you're looking at them like, you have all these abilities. Why are you not doing this thing? Because people just don't have strong enough reasons. So I'll tell you the two reasons that I had. The first one was, I touched on this a moment ago, was I got recruited. I went to a school called Penn State Abington, which is right outside of Philadelphia in my freshman year. And I got recruited to Penn State Altoona, which is a school I graduated from. After my freshman year. So that summer after freshman year, I got recruited to Penn State Altoona for my last three years of college. The coach who recruited me, he coached me for my sophomore year, and then he lost his job. So a new coach came in my junior year. Now, this guy, he wanted to clean house. He wanted to bring in a whole new slab of players. And I was initially on his roster when he first cleaned out damn near everybody. I was actually one who made it, but I didn't last even the whole season. So halfway through my junior season, I got kicked off the team. So my last year and a half of college, I was in school, going to school, playing pickup and all this stuff, completely healthy, completely academically eligible, everything. But I wasn't on a basketball team, but I had like all my friends were basketball players. So I just I would come to the games and cheer for my friends, but I wasn't on the team. So the fact that I was not on that team bothered me because I knew that in my mind, I was better than everybody who was on the basketball team. But as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, in sports, you got a scoreboard. In sports, everything is black and white. So people can say whatever they want to say. But at the end of the day, all we got to do is look at that scoreboard and that tells the truth. So for me, I was able to have this conversation with myself. Like, okay, Dre, you think you're better than everybody on the basketball team, but guess what? Every night when there's a game, they're on the court playing and you're sitting in the bleachers. So you can't say you're better than them because they're playing and you ain't. <laughs> you're all in the same school. So for me, I'm thinking, all right, so how can I prove? If I want to prove for posterity's sake that I'm better than these players, what can I do? Since I can't play college ball, I'm, in, I'm not on the team, what other option do I have? My next option was, all right, if I go pro and I play pro basketball and all these players on the team, my ex-teammates don't play pro, then none of them could say they're better than me because I went further than them. So that was my first motivation was to outachieve these players. The second motivation was when I graduated college, I came home back to Philadelphia 
And my parents asked me, all right, son, you have your degree. I got a degree in uh, business with a focus in management and marketing from Penn State University. They said, all right, you have a degree. What are you going to do now? And I said, I'm going to play pro basketball. And my parents didn't understand this at all because they knew that this is their child who I didn't start playing ball until I was 14 years old. Only played one year of varsity basketball in high school. I hadn't played my last year and a half of college. So just looking at that on paper, if you didn't even know me, you would say, okay, this person, obviously, maybe they like basketball, but they're probably not going anywhere with it. They haven't achieved much in their life in basketball to this point. So I completely understand why my parents were looking at me crazy when I said I was going to play basketball. So my mother was asking me, hey, how are you going to do it? You know, what's your plan? Do you have an agent? Do you have any kind of leads or anything? She doesn't know anything about sports, but she was asking logical questions, reasonable questions. And I didn't have good answers to any of them because at that time, as I already told you, I didn't have anything going. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just had the idea. So she basically gave me a, a strong talking to like, you don't have any kind of plan or strategy or anything to do this, but you're talking about you're going to play basketball. It doesn't make any sense. And it didn't make sense. So when she said that, I was upset, not at the fact that she had said what she said, because everything she said was completely factual. It was all facts, as we say these days. It was reasonable. It was logical. Everything was the truth. So I was not mad at her for saying it. I was just mad at the truth being the truth. And that upset me to the point that it ranked right up there with that college coach kicking me off the team. So those two, circling back to what I said that started this answer, those were my real motivations for playing pro. It wasn't the fact that what made me become a pro is not the fact that I could jump a certain number of inches in the air or that my jump shot was this good or I'm a good dribbler or any kind of stat or even what I did at that exposure camp that I mentioned a few minutes ago. It was the reasons why I wanted to do it. When those reasons are strong enough, people could do pretty much anything that they want to do in life. The challenge that many people have is that they don't have any reasons. So even though they may be very good and they have a lot of resources, they achieve very little. So for me, those reasons are the main reasons, the main things that drove me to becoming a pro. I love that. It's like it lit the fire, right? Exactly. Exactly. And on where I read it, on maybe your website or something like that, maybe your social media, you had a post that was saying, you know, people seek motivation, but they need discipline. Yeah, that was you know, on Instagram. So with that, how did you have the discipline, you know, that, that superseded the motivation? It's a great question. Well, going back to my parents, they were all about discipline. My mother was the one who did most of the handing out of the discipline in our family. I have one sister who's a year older than me, but she was all about you know, getting things done, doing things today instead of doing them tomorrow, making sure things are done properly. So I got that discipline from her. So when I had those reasons to do what I wanted to do to achieve what I wanted to achieve, that whole year and a half from when I graduated college, I'm working a, a regular job, not really using my college degree at all, <laughs> and wanting to go play pro basketball. What kept me disciplined and showing up was that I knew where I wanted to go. And I had a target at that point. As I talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, you were just asking me what was it that you know, made me even want to keep going in basketball was that I'm just a competitive individual. Once I have a target and I have something to compete against, then I can get locked in. I don't have a problem staying disciplined when I know what I'm going for. I don't care if it's going to take me years to achieve it. As long as I know what the target is and I know what I'm going after, I can keep going for it. So the motivation to keep showing up and doing the work, if we want to call it motivation, that discipline was fueled by the fact that I had reasons, the fact that I had a why and I knew what I wanted to achieve. There was no way that I was going to let that college coach who kicked me off or my parents pointing out the reality of my life, no way that I was going to let those win over my internal desires. So that was really the thing for me is that I don't care how long it takes or what I got to do. I'm going to make this happen because these reasons right here in my mind is no way I'm going to let these reasons in the end be able to look at me and say, we were right and you weren't. Man, I can relate to that so much because like my freshman year, I was testing the team because I got hurt. I was walking on and I put my hamstring right for a first meet. And I know for me, when that coach cut me, it was like the first time in my life that someone really told me that I wasn't good enough to be an athlete. Right. And that like just, I want to say a little fire for me, but it just really was an ego shock because it was like, dang. 
I'm not as good as I thought I was, or he doesn't value as much as me as an athlete that he values every other athlete that he has on the team. And I was like, man. So I definitely relate yeah. to that. That That's why. True. And you know, the thing is that a lot of people hesitate to talk about their ego, like you just mentioned. And people don't want to mention that, you know, it hurt my ego that the coach cut me or something like what you said. Like it hurt my ego that that college coach cut me. And it hurt my ego that my parents were like, what do you mean you're going to play pro basketball? Like they were looking at me like I was crazy for even saying that. And I'm thinking I'm ready to play. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. That touches the ego. And a lot of people, they don't want to admit that their ego is bothered by something that somebody else said or something someone else did or just something that occurred. But the fact is, to have, to be strongly confident or to achieve anything significant in life, you need to be in touch with your ego. You need to know that this really matters to me, that it matters a whole lot to me internally to achieve this or to win this or to beat this person or whatever it is, because that's where we get our sense of self-worth is from our ego. But so many people these days, because we've been socialized to be humble or to extol humility over everything that nobody wants to mention that their ego is involved in any of their actions or any of their decisions, but ego absolutely is involved. If you're not in touch with that ego, you probably will not achieve much. Man, I wish I, I wish I could have heard you talk when I was like in school, like in high school and college, because I was one of those people that was like, yeah, I'm gonna stay humble, you know, that's what the world wants me to do. But really, right. but inside yeah. of it, I was like kind of caved in because I was like, you know, like you're like kind of like you want to branch out, be like, nah, I need to stay humble, can't be overconfident. And I think that's, that was like a downfall for sure. If you look at people who achieve at really high levels in life, they're all very in touch with their egos. If you look at someone like, and we're talking basketball, talk about like Kobe Bryant. You know, a lot of people who, with Kobe, you either loved him or hated him, right? The people who hated Kobe Bryant would always say, well, he's egotistical. He thinks he's all that. He's cocky. And I was like, well, hell yeah, he is. So look how good he is. <laughs> he's good at what he does. He's earned the right to be it. But at the same time, you're not going to get to a high level of anything you do if you're not deeply in touch with that ego. Even people talk about someone like Donald Trump. Now, whether you agree with him, disagree with him, love him or hate him, everyone can agree that this guy's deeply in touch with his ego. You know, he was putting his name on everything even before he got into politics. And that's why everybody knows his name. So again, whether you like him or not, he's deeply in touch with his ego and he's unapologetic about it. Or you look at Michael Jordan or a lot of our entertainers, a Kim Kardashian, a Kanye West, Jay-Z, these people are deeply in touch with their egos. And Beyonce, she got a song called Ego, right? Yeah, yeah. People don't have a problem talking about it when they get to these high levels of achievement. But a lot of people, you know, they talk down on people for being egotistical or narcissistic or cocky or arrogant. These words that we use to make people look bad. But the fact of the matter is everyone who achieves at a high level is deeply in touch with their ego. Some people are just more open about it and they don't care that you know that they're egotistical. Some are better at hiding it. But everyone who achieves at a high level is deeply in touch with their ego, and they don't have a problem with that. My ego made me go D1. That's what I say sometimes. Because right. I was like, nah, I don't want to go NAI. I got off of the NAI. I, was like, I don't want to do that. I want to be a D1 athlete. I to go home in Oklahoma. So, though that you said that, so like, I feel better about myself now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the goal. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> but now you're, you got discipline. You got getting more of that that target to, to say, all right, overseas is where we're going. So you said before that so your team got, got to invite you to a camp. You didn't go the first year. Then you went with the next year. So, so how did that go for you? Well, the camp went great for me. But the first year when I got out of college, my teammates had got invited to the camp. I didn't get invited, but my teammates had suggested that I go anyway because you could go without the invite. But I just knew about it. They were saying, you can, you know, if you just pay the money, they would have took my money and let me come. But I just didn't go because I didn't feel like I was ready. But that next year I was ready. I had been working out. I was working at Valley Total Fitness. So I had access to a gym. I went and got a, another membership to LA Fitness because Valley didn't have a basketball court. They had a weight room. So I was in game shape. I was ready to go. And I played really well at that camp. You know, my thing as an athlete, as a player, my main skill at that time was that I was really athletic. So I could play above the rim and get dunks and stuff like that. So I had the most dunks of anybody at that camp and people knew who I was. Cause I mean, you know, Jacoby in basketball, if you get a dunk in a game, everybody remembers you. Even if you only had two points, they could be your only points that one dunk, but everybody remembers it. So I had a few dunks and that got me noticed and they wrote up a scouting report about me. The scouting report was good. They gave me the footage of the games that I had played in. 
And then I just took that scouting report, which was a link online, and I took that footage and I just started sending that around to agents. And I finally found an agent who was interested in representing me. And that's how I ended up getting that deal, started my career in Lithuania. When that offer came, was there a sense of I made it, other work's over? Yeah, hell yeah, it was a sense that I made it because all that time from, I mean, I got kicked off my college team in, that was like January of 2003. So that's the whole rest of that whole spring semester, junior year, then two semesters, my senior year, then a whole year after college. So that's two and a half years from when I had been on a, a proper basketball team until I signed that contract. Because at the time, I remember I was working at Valley Total Fitness in this town called Willow Grove outside of Philadelphia. And my agent and I, we would text each other back. He would just text me whenever something was going on. So he texted me one day. I was at work. I remember getting a text. He was like, yeah, I got a team in Lithuania who's interested. And he gave me some little bit of details about what the conversation was. And he just asked me, you know, are you available? You open to this? You want this? And I said, yeah, definitely. I want it. But he was like, all right, I'm going back and forth with them. You know, I'll get back to you as we talk. And, you know, Lithuania is like seven, eight hours in advance of the eastern side of the United States. So he would send an email, but not get a reply to the next day. So they're going back and forth. So it took about three days, but he's texting me every day, letting me know how the conversations are going and this and that. So I'm excited, but I'm just waiting with bated breath. I didn't say anything to anybody. I didn't tell anyone what was going on. I just stayed calm because I needed to know that it was actually done. And then I needed to, first of all, I needed my agent to say it was done. Second, I needed the paperwork to sign. And third, I needed to actually have a flight. I needed to actually be on the plane and hear them close the doors and see the plane pull off from the, you know, the runway where people get on the plane. I needed that to happen before I could say, all right, this is officially real. So it wasn't until then when I was on that plane, I remember it was uh, Lufthansa Airlines flying from Philly to through Frankfurt, then to Lithuania. That's when I knew it was real, when I was actually on that plane. So, yes, it absolutely was a combination of excitement, happiness, vindication. At the same time, I knew I still needed to go over there and play on the court. Because <laughs> if you don't play well, then you might not be there too long. Yeah. Yeah. But that's so cool, though. You know how you went from being the kid that, that wants to be known. And now you might be a known overseas. Absolutely. And that's dope that you actually said, yo, like, yo, I made it. I think sometimes we get so caught in having the next goal, the next goal that we don't realize that we just accomplished something that's, that's big. Yeah, that's definitely true. We don't go back. So once you, you got on that plane, you know, it's taken off and you landed overseas, how was that overseas journey for you now that you're actually now a legit overseas professional basketball player? It was very surreal because at this time I was 23 years old. I had barely been out of Philadelphia to that point in my life. I mean, I'm from Philly, born and raised in Philly. I've been to New York a time or two. I've been to Penn State for school. It's like four hours away from Philly. I've been to Vegas once, but that was it. <laughs> I hadn't been anywhere else outside of Philadelphia ever in my life. So now I'm on a plane. I'm in Lithuania, a country that I couldn't have even pointed out on a map before I went over there. So I get there and there were actually, it was two other Americans there because there were two teams in the city that I was in. So one of the guys was on another team, one of the guys was my teammate. And then there was a guy who was actually from Africa, but he, I mean, he spoke perfect English. He was a brown skin guy. So the four of us are walking around Lithuania, <laughs> four black guys. I'm six, four. I was the shortest one. So another guy's six, seven, this other guy's seven feet. This other dude's like six, five. So we're walking around Lithuania and they're all older than me. They all had pro experience that I didn't have. So they were all telling me like, man, you're just starting your career. This is good for you. You're in a good league. It's a good opportunity and all that. And we're just walking around. We're eating food. We're walking through the center of the town and people are stopping and looking at us. And one of the guys is actually really well known. So he's signing autographs, taking pictures. It was just really, really surreal that I just kept thinking to myself, like, wow, I'm in damn Lithuania right now as a professional basketball player. I couldn't really even believe for at some points that I was actually there, actually doing that. So it was an amazing feeling. It's a feeling that that's a, a moment that you can't get back. You can't recreate that kind of moment. So how's the food, though? You know, going from <laughs> Philly to Lithuania, how's the food or how do you adjust? The food was fine because what I would do was I didn't cook. So I would go to in the town square. There were restaurants and stuff like that. 
and hardly a lot of people didn't speak English there. So I would just go and I would ask the waitress. I would try to many of the waitresses would speak English. So I would try to ask them, you know, what they had. And they could understand within two seconds they knew that I didn't speak Lithuanian. So mm-hmm. they would try to help by pointing out something that they figured I would know, like a cheeseburger or some spaghetti or something like that. So that's I pretty much ate the same meals over and over again the whole time that I was there. Because once I found a meal that I liked, I would just order the same thing every time over and over. Just keep the food it. was great. That's what's up. So overseas became the journey for you. And that was that point in your life where it was like, all right, I achieved this dream. How long was your overseas journey, overseas career? It went until 2015. So I started in 2005, ended in 2015. But in between there, there were years where I didn't even have a contract or times where the season was starting, but I didn't have a deal. So at one point, probably about four years into my career, that's when I said to myself, hey, I need to figure out how I can get some control over my destiny, over my life. Because if I keep going like this, this up and down, have a job, not have a job, I don't really have any control over my finances, over my career, over where I'm physically living, nothing. So that's when I started focusing a little bit more on, I had a website at that time. I had a few videos on YouTube that I would post, you know, sporadically. That's when I started focusing on doing that more in a more disciplined way and more strategic way, more consistently. And that's what really led to me becoming more known. It wasn't actually playing overseas that got me known. It was actually the internet. So it's funny that it just worked out that way. And when you started doing the videos and the content, what did you see as the end result or, or what was the goal with that? Would it just be known? Was it like, say, I want to become, you know, a paid YouTuber? Like, what was your target for that? That's a good question. I didn't have a goal when I first started doing it. Like, so I'll give you the timeline. So 2005, I started playing ball overseas. In 2006, I put my first video on YouTube, which was actually the footage from that exposure camp that I talked about. It was that footage. But that footage had been on this thing called a VHS tape. I don't know if you remember what those are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I put that, I got it put on a CD, put the CD in a computer and put that on YouTube. That was my first YouTube video, was that footage or a clip of that footage. And I was putting videos on YouTube here and there whenever I got around to it. Like, for example, I would record a video and I would just let it sit on my computer's hard drive for months because I didn't take YouTube seriously. I'm like, YouTube is just this random site where you post videos, who cares? Because at this time, you couldn't even make money on YouTube. This was before Google had even purchased YouTube. So there are no ads or nothing. It was just cat videos and people doing funny stuff. That's what YouTube was yeah. from 2005 to about 2009. Then, I was, so I'm playing overseas off and on, off and on. So around 2009, a couple of things happened. First of all, again, I was without a contract and the season was starting. And the second thing was someone had sent me this article that was like, hey, you should read this article because this article is about this person who makes videos on YouTube like you, but they actually make money from it. I didn't know this was a possibility. So this is when YouTube first opened what they called then the partner program. I guess they still call it that, but it was different then. Back then, you had to actually apply. You had to fill out a form and submit an application. And then YouTube would look at your stuff and they would get back to you like weeks later and let you know whether or not they would allow you to run ads on your videos. So for people listening, believe it or not, there was a time when you could actually choose whether or not to run ads on your videos. So it's a lot different now. So. I filled out that form. They rejected me actually the first time because I had a bunch of videos with music in it and stuff. And this is before you could do that. Like mm-hmm. nowadays you can put music in a video and they'll just let you know, but they'll let your videos keep going. Back then, if you had music in a video, they would make you take the video down or they would mute the video to where there would be no sound whatsoever because the music companies didn't quite understand what YouTube was at that point. So I deleted all those videos, applied again, and I finally became an official, quote, YouTube partner, close quote, at that time. This is around 2009. So this is, at the time, we weren't even calling it social media yet. We were just calling it, you know, these apps. So it was Facebook, Twitter had just come out. Uh, blogging was still a thing that people didn't take seriously. If you were a blogger in 2009, you know, people are looking at you like you're a clown, like you're some bum living in your mom's basement. You know, when you're going to get a real job, that's what people would say about bloggers back then. We weren't calling it content. Uh, we weren't even calling it personal branding yet. All of that stuff came about over the last 10 years. So I didn't have a goal of this is going to become a business or anything like that. But I was reading Tim Ferriss, who's the author of Four Hour Workweek. 
it was either an article or it was in his book where he talked about how you could test the market viability of a product. And because people were watching these basketball videos that I started in 2009, I started putting videos out every day. Once YouTube offered this partnership thing, I said, all right, I go to the gym every day. I'm going to just record a video every day and put it on YouTube. Wasn't sure I had enough ideas to do that. but And that was when I had maybe 50 videos online. Today, I have over 7,000. But at that time, I wasn't sure I had enough ideas. So I would post these videos and basketball players would say, yeah, these videos are great. Thanks. This is helping me out. And people would ask me to make programs for them because they wanted to know how they could practice the way that I practice. And I told them, like, it's, it's too many of you asking me this question. I can't make a program for everybody. But one day somebody said, well, Dre, why don't you just take what you do and just put it into a system and then just let everybody follow what you do instead of trying to make it for each person. Just make one from based on your game. And I said, all right, I'll do that. But I'm a charge for it because it's going to take me some time and effort to put that together. And people said, well, we'll buy it as long as it doesn't cost too much. Because mind you, these are kids that are watching these mm-hmm. videos that a lot of the comments were you know, between 13 and 24 years old you know, basketball players. So going off of what Tim Ferriss had explained, all I did was put $5 in Google ads. And I made this one page website that said, you know, basketball training programs. And then I put on the site, I'm going to make a program for dribbling and one for shooting. They cost $4.99. If you want to buy it, click this button. And if someone clicked the button, on the next page, it would say, these programs are under construction, but if you're really interested, just put in your email address, and as soon as they're ready, I'll email you and tell you that they're ready. So Tim Ferriss's, I made that off of Tim Ferriss's explanation, and he said, if you get people putting their email address in on that page, number one, they already know what you're offering, number two, they know the price, and number three, they clicked on it. So they want to pay for it at that price. That means you have a, a viable product. That means you should probably go make it because somebody will buy it. I'm really bastardizing how he explained it, but that's what I remember. So I went and did that and I got a few email addresses. So I said, all right, I'm gonna make this product. So I went and made, my first product was just like a ball handling, practicing product, simple ball handling drills. And I sold it for $4.99. And that's how I became an entrepreneur. So that's really where it came off of, was just taking what the audience was offering, asking me and making a product out of it and then putting it out there to the world and selling it. So that's how... At that time, where I really started to have these two careers running parallel at the same time. That's dope from the whole journey because it goes back to what you said earlier, how all you need is like 10% of the knowledge, 10% of the knowledge, exactly. and how you were probably were like, all right, we're going to figure this out. Like, I know A and B, and that's all we need. So that's, exactly. I think a lot of people can, can learn from that because I know a lot of us have these business ideas, right? And we sit on them because we don't know how to build a website or how to connect to Mailchimp, whatever it may be. And you're just saying like, well, <laughs> right. I, and these days you could just hire somebody to do that. Exactly. Back then, you had to, back then you had to do it on your own. Go to Fiverr, go to Upwork and you get somebody. <laughs> somebody exactly. Like, for cheap. Five <laughs> yeah, definitely for sure. So now you're an athletepreneur, as we can say. Mm-hmm. And when did it become the chapter where it said, I'm going to, hang up the playing days and focus on this next chapter? Well, that was around 2014, 2015, because at that time I had been going to the gym every single day for at least six days a week for years. I'm talking from 2005 when I'm getting out of school and starting my career through 2014, 15. So 10 straight years of just doing this and recording videos every day. I had you know, thousands of videos published to YouTube. I still have another 10,000 videos on my in the cloud right now that have never come out. Nobody's ever seen them because I recorded that much material. And I'm saying that to say I was in the gym so much that it finally got to a point when I wasn't excited to go to the gym every morning anymore. That was the first time I'd ever felt that, that I wasn't excited to go to the gym and work on my game. So I decided to give myself a one week experiment because at this time I was living in South Beach, Miami. And I said, all right, I'm not going to go to the gym at all for one week. I'm just going to go. I'm going to take walks around South Beach for exercise. I'll do yoga in the park right in South Point Park, like right along the beach. I'll just do that to keep my health, but I'm not going to go to the basketball court at all. So I did that for one week and I figured that if I really wanted to keep playing basketball, I would be stir crazy. I'd be going crazy because I wasn't on the court working on my game. Or if I wasn't stir crazy, then maybe it's time to look at some other options for my life. And what happened was option B. I didn't feel bad about not going to the basketball court. So that told me it's time to stop playing. 
And this is something that I talked about in my book, Work on Your Game, that when you get to the point where you're not excited to show up every day and do what you're supposed to do, then you need to get out of the way. At that point, I knew it was time for me to get out of the way because I would only be playing basketball just to do it just because it was a job, not because I was actually I had any energy or passion about it. So that's when I knew it was time for me to start walking away from basketball. And at this time, I was in my early 30s. I was only 32, 33 years old, 33 years old at this time. But then I just started looking at what my other options are. And because I had been making videos on YouTube, once a week, I would make this video called The Weekly Motivation. And it was just me talking. It wasn't playing ball, but it was just me talking about some mindset perspective that I had about life. And they were all about discipline and confidence and mental toughness and personal initiative. Because I've been making those videos for years, I had started to have this this little small niche audience of people who were not basketball players who actually would watch those videos because they liked the stuff that I was talking about every week. And that was the step planted the seed for me to say, you know what, maybe I could go into something like professional speaking or I can take this mindset stuff and make something out of it. I didn't quite know what. And this is right when self-publishing is starting to become a, a normal thing. It was very easy to do at that time. So then I knew I could write books. And I actually joined a Toastmasters, which is where I just I met some people who knew some things about professional speaking and things like that. And just the overall thought leadership, being a consultant, being a, a coach and things like that. So I started to meet the right type of people, started to make the right types of connections. And I saw that this can actually work. I can walk away from playing basketball and this can actually work. And I knew while some basketball fans of mine would not follow me because they were still looking for basketball material. There were others who had basically grown up with me. I mean, there are people who have been watching me online since 2008, 2009. And they had gone from being some teenager trying to make their high school team to a, a grown man or grown woman who wasn't even playing ball anymore. And I still get messages from those people to this very day. So I knew there was some crossover from one audience to the next. But I also knew there was some audience of people who didn't care about basketball, who would be interested in hearing what I had to say because it was no longer just sports. So that's the jump that I made around, again, 2014, 2015, transitioning out of basketball and into this, I guess we'll call, like you said, athletepreneur or thought leadership position. Man, that's dope. Like, I don't know the way to say it, but like, it's just cool to see how you progress through this whole journey. Thank you. You know, like, and like, yeah, I know like people have been like, ah, oh, I could have found easy, but it just sounds like you just stayed the course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and just going off of the skills that I had and figuring out how I could take what I had already done and leverage it towards what I wanted to do next. So when it comes to, you know, 2019, guess we're going, we're heading to 2020. Who is Dre Baldwin? Who am I? I am an entrepreneur. I'm still a, a former athlete, and that still matters to people. Just the fact that I play professional sports is a, even outside of the sports world, is a credibility piece. You know, people are interested in someone who played professional sports because we all know how few people actually get a chance to do it. So that still matters even when I'm talking to a room full of people who are, you know, insurance agents or online marketers and things like that. And I just continue to create. I'm trying to as publish as much stuff as I can, have it all in place. I want to just make sure that I get everything that's in my head out and on paper, quote unquote, you know, while I have the ability to do it, whether that be through a video, through audio, through an interview, uh, writing a book, a blog post, whatever it happens to be. I just want to get all this stuff out there so that other people can access it, learn from it and grow from it, even if they never meet me in person. And I don't know, is for me, it's cool just to see how, like, I'm big on that. Everyone has a story, right? Regardless of your popularity, your status. And and I think hearing a story like yours, it, it shows how you don't have to have it made from the get-go. You know, you, you don't have to be this five-star recruit. You don't have to, you don't have to be a Division One athlete. You don't have to be an NBA player to make an impact, right? And I think, and I hope when people hear your story, they're going to really resonate with would just you just got to go for it absolutely and that point about everybody having a story is really true and everybody has their own path everybody has their own lane that they're going to get into like when i was getting out of college there was no lane called youtuber 
<laughs> this is 2004. YouTube did not even exist at that time. Neither did social media, neither did personal branding, neither did the phrase content. None of those existed, but I built my whole business on them because it happened to come around at the right time. And the great thing for us, everyone who's listening to this right now, is that nowadays, or even going back, let's say my parents or somebody who grew up in the 90s or the 80s or any time before that, if you had the same skill set that I had and you grew up in the, the 80s, you didn't have as many options. Like You had to go through some gatekeeper to maybe get a, I don't know, a TV show, be, get a radio spot. And if you didn't get that, then you didn't have any other thing that you could do. If you didn't make it in the NBA, you might not have a chance to go overseas because the information was very hard to come by. But nowadays, anybody could pretty much do anything. I mean, you could be on any one of these apps and you can make a full-time business just tweeting all day or making funny videos on TikTok or Instagramming. There are so many platforms for anyone to get their name, their ideas, their whatever out there to the world. Even a musician, you don't have to get a record deal. You can just, you can have an audience of a thousand people. If they buy your stuff, you can make a full-time living from that. So the opportunity for anyone to become literally anything that they want to be, anything that doesn't require a gatekeeper is wide open these days. So there's really no reason why anyone should not do what they want to do because the opportunity is there and it's usually just a one-step process, just you doing the thing and finding an audience of people who are interested in it. And that audience doesn't have to be a million people. That audience can be 10 people if they're paying you enough money, <laughs> depending on what it is or what it is you're trying to do. So, I mean, everything's wide open these days. And I think it's only going to become more and more wide open. The biggest challenge for people now is not taking it for granted. Because somebody like myself or yourself who may understand what it was like when this wasn't so wide open, we value it because we see what it used to be. But someone, let's say, who was born in the year 2000, they don't know what it was like to not have access to pretty much anything and not be able to publish yourself whenever you felt like it. So they may take it for granted because they're so used to it. But the DSL days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hooking up to the phone line. You had to yeah. disconnect the phone <laughs> to get on the Internet. <laughs> Glory day, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was like a mic drop right there for you. Right. <laughs> but last question for you, man. So before I let you go, is so where are you at? Social media, website, where we've kind of find more about you and what you're up to. Oh well on social media, on Twitter, I am at Dre All Day on my Instagram and Snapchat are at Dre Baldwin. For some reason, Instagram won't let me get that Dre All Day name. But uh my website is dreallday.com. All my products, books, et cetera, at workonmygame.com. But if you just go to any one of those platforms, you'll see links to all the other ones. So whichever one you prefer on YouTube, just look up my name, Dre Baldwin. I'm on everything. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything. Just look my name up and you'll see me. Man, Dre, appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing your story. And it inspired me and kind of gave me some knowledge that I can use. Hopefully people at listening can get the same same value as well and what if i'm gonna be in touch soon because i got some, some more questions for you i want to like pick your brain a little bit in the sense of like ways we can maybe work together in the future for some other stuff for athletes and everything so you doing what you're doing my man sure i would love to do it thank you for having me on i appreciate the time and to everyone who's listening appreciate it man Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nine Point Started With A Dream podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please comment, share, leave a review. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can find more athlete-driven content at ninepoint.com. Till the next episode, you're only one opportunity away. Peace.